Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back you're listening to the red box politics podcast with me patrick mcguire informat chorley This week, to mark 30 years since the 1992 election, I spoke to three men who saw it from the front line. Neil Kinnock, who lost the election for Labour, Chris Patton, who won it for John Major, and Phil Webster, who covered it all as political editor of The Times. We also have our columnist panel with Melanie Reid from The Times and Josh Glonty from The Sunday Times. Firstly, given we're on the subject, what would you bring back for the 90s? Josh, I imagine for you it's... Uh, Alex Ferguson, Andre Kanchelskis, Eric Cantona. Oh no, you've taken my uh, you've taken my point from me, Patrick. Oh, yes, I think I Ferguson, do my research. And Manchester United as a proper football team would be nice. I think the other thing I'd probably bring back w- would be optimism, <laughs> frankly, because uh, I think we live in a very pessimistic world nowadays. And I I, I remember the nineties as being quite quite brimming with optimism. So yeah, optimism and and Fergie's United would as, be my two. As a precocious youngster, were you reading Francis Fukuyama saying it was the end of history and? <laughs> Looking forward not, to not, a long and happy life. Not that the case. Melly, what about you? What would you bring back from the 1990s? Well, I was a young mum in the 1990s, and, and uh, so I'm going to be unbearably soppy. I'm very sorry. I apologise in advance, but I would like to bring back my son being a baby because that was, that was kind of the only thing that mattered from the 90s for me. Are you saying your son is no longer the only thing that matters to you, Melanie, and he's not <laughs> still beautiful? Yeah, but I miss the smell of pseudocreme and the just the baby thing. Well, surely he still um, smells of pseudocreme now. You know, lib- <laughs> liberal application of pseudocreme. Uh, anyway, I think that's quite enough about uh, your son's, uh, you know, morning moisturising. But anyway, let's get on to uh, more substantive issues. The big story this morning, of course, is Rishi Sunak, his wife, her tax affairs, and his belief that it's a hit job. Josh, what do you make of this story? Because Rishi Sunak has obviously enjoyed a pretty uh, irresistible rise to the top of British politics. You know, the first uh, millennial at the summit of uh, at the summit of the game, and for a long time it looked as if that ascent was going to continue 
straight to number 10. But he's had a terrible week, hasn't he? Well, we do like in this country to, to build people up and, and knock them down again. And I'm afraid this is Rishi's turn in the barrel. Um, yeah, the, the hit job stuff is interesting, isn't it? It, it does. The, the timing is obviously couldn't be worse for Sunak. Uh, you know, the cost of living crisis is biting. He's just announced um, really difficult tax situation for, for people across the country. Uh, and then suddenly we learn that his wife is non-domiciled and, and suddenly we're all looking at how wealthy he is, which we've we've known all along, but suddenly it's the front page of every paper. It was notable that um, Boris Johnson was asked about this and he said, uh, I think this is very important in politics, if you possibly can, to try and keep people's families out of it. So <laughs> I think that was an acknowledgement from him that uh, this may not be one of those moments where you can keep your family out of it. And I think he's probably, even if the leaks didn't come from number 10, I think he's probably a part of him's enjoying this because he got pretty lukewarm support from Sunak over Partygate. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, this morning's Times reports that Boris Johnson um, didn't even know. Rishi Sunak didn't even declare it to Boris Johnson. I think um, if you were Rishi Sunak, you would probably have half an hour on a headline that, like this if you told Boris Johnson or anyone close to him any uh, sensitive or politically damaging information. But Melanie, what do you make of this? Because, you know, there is clearly a difference. You know, everybody hates answering questions about their family, even if you are you have a walk-on part in public life. It's one of the, you know, the rough ends of the job, isn't it? But th- there is clearly a difference here between, I don't know, a prime minister like Gordon Brown, for instance, had a lot of headlines about his um, son's health. Uh, David Cameron, uh, similarly, uh, you know, Tony Blair, um, you know, also faced questions like this about Sherry Blair's business affairs there's you know there are clearly the legitimate questions to be asked of rishi sunak here aren't there there are but i i and but i am as you suggest conflicted because from from a, a woman's point of view i i i'm i'm naturally defensive of of a woman's a woman to be a person in her own right to have to do her own, a political wife to be uh, her own woman and not to be dragged into the mire or that is her husband's job and so th- there is part of me that 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 feels um, she is entitled to very much have her own life. And, and, you know, she's very wealthy. She's very lucky. Good on her. But um, at the same time, it is, it, it is unavoidably the case that she is the wife of the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And it is, it's just too close. It's the, 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 you know, it's, it's not like uh, nothing that happens has ever happened to sort of Hillary Clinton or Sheree Blair or Carrie Johnson has come that close to the absolute essence of mm. of of um, the chance uh, 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 of the, your husband's you know uh, raison d'etre and and it's which is making money for for the for the for the country so it's the optics are terrible um, you know I, I what I would really love Patrick I mean I know this is this is the gossip that you guys <laughs> you guys try I would I would just love to be on the inside and to know who leaked it was it was it Labour was it. Was it number 10? I would, oh, I would love to know that. Well, that is the question every hack who wasn't lucky enough to get the original scoop that was in the Independent on, on, when, in the Independent on Wednesday has been asking themselves, you know, this is constantly, it's very bad form for hacks to speculate about each other's sources, but that doesn't stop us doing it um, every waking hour. Josh, I think one of the interesting elements of this story is what it says about the, you know, curious British attitude to wealth and class, because Rishi Sunak is unique in that, um, he's one of the richest men ever to hold his office. And I think in British politics, there are either two two modes of thinking when we talk about wealth. There's either sort of cringing, um, you know, questions about 
pints of milk um, or condescension, be that, you know, Nadine Dorries saying uh, George Osborne and David Cameron were two posh boys, didn't know the price of a pint of milk. Um, I'd love to know what milk Rishi Sunak drinks and from what sort of, you know, well-fed uh, boutique farm animal. Or, you know, it's the Alan Clark critique of, you know, the, you know it's, or it's snobbery, you know, Alan Clark saying Michael Hazeltine had to buy his own furniture. What do you mm. think this story tells us about how we see very wealthy people in British politics? Well, you know, it's interesting because, because Rishi Sunak wasn't born into great wealth. Uh, he was sent to Winchester College. He was clearly from a kind of upwardly mobile middle-class family, but they weren't hugely wealthy. And, he, you know, he waited tables at his local curry house in Southampton. And when he when he was in the summer holidays, you know, he, he's very much aspirational. And I think early on in Sunak's rise, we felt good about that. He, I think one of the reasons that made Sunak popular, apart from splurging hundreds of millions uh, on COVID furlough and the like, was that he made us feel good about Britain. This is a a man from an Indian immigrant family uh, who made his way through the world, hardworking, aspirational. And it was a nice story we could tell about the liberal face of, of Britain, even, you know, even though he's a Tory. But, you know, clearly, as, as you pointed out, there is another side of our feelings about wealth. Uh, and that's coming out now that actually there is this obsession in Britain with one rule for them and another for us. And anything that contributes to a sense of unfairness, of thinking you're above the rest of us, you know, we like the idea that our prime minister lives in a, a grotty flat in, a, above the shop, so to speak. We like to almost punish our politicians. Well, not so, not so grotty anymore, Lulu well, Littles. So, well, had well, had her well, away with it. Well, a grotty flat with lurid, garish wallpaper <laughs> on it. But um, so, you know, we don't like people to sort of get too far above, above the rest of us mm. uh, in politics. And I think, unfortunately for Rishi Sunak, he's now seeing the other side of that, that he does live in this gilded world. He's married into this extraordinarily wealthy family uh, and now that the country's in a bit of a foul mood and he's not just handing out wads of cash left and right um people don't like it uh let's race through the rest of the news olaf schultz the german chancellor is coming to london for the very first time today to talk to boris johnson about ukraine melanie if you were the prime minister if only of course if only what would you be saying to uh, olaf schultz today um, well, I would I would be urging him to do more. Um, I think Schultz is is I mean Germany is is an ultra cautious, ultra conservative country politically, um, and I think Schultz Schultz is very much in that mold. We we all know that. Um, I I but I would I would urge him to to try and um, inflict a little bit of pain on his people and to go a bit further in limiting gas and oil imports. Um, it, it, you know, they are, still, they are still putting a lot of money into the German economy every day. Josh, what about you? What would you say to Olaf Schultz if you had the chance? Well, I thought that was a good line from uh, Paul Krugman, uh, the economist, who said that, you know, that when you look at the pain that Germany imposed on southern European countries mm. during the 2010s for overspending... Uh, and making mistakes with their spending, um, it was swift and it was painful. Uh, and I think we can now say that Germany's energy policy was similarly irresponsible and that perhaps they should take a little bit of pain and then maybe it's their turn. Um, so I think that's a good point. I also thought there was a good point made about, you know, Germany has this obsession with its kind of memory culture and how it's quite uh, impressively sort of dealt with the, the crimes of its past. Um but, but memory without uh, resolve to actually do anything it, it is, is in some ways meaningless. In some mm. ways, it's a crutch. You know, so I think that 
they need to act in the present, not just sort of congratulate themselves for processing the past. So I, I might point that out too. Yes, many years of consensus of German politics in flux at the minute. We've just got time to talk about the biggest issue of today. It's something I'm very animated about. The West Yorkshire town of Ilkley, Ilkley Moor Barter, <laughs> has been named the best place to live in the country by the Sunday Times uh, in the magazine coming out this weekend. Um, obviously, I think this is sacrilege. It's a proud sandgrounder, son of Southport, uh, birthplace. Yeah where, where was, yeah, where was Southport in the list? Every year I look at these lists... The Northwest, it's never Southport, which is a disgrace. Birthplace of AJP Taylor, uh, Red Rum, Lee Mack, Mark Holman from Soft Cell, and of course me, second longest peer in the country, the Paris of the North, never anywhere to be seen. Anyway, if not Southport, where is the best place to live in the country, Melanie? Well, according according to the list, uh, the 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 Scottish one is the island of Bute, which is um, you know this very very beautiful little little island with um, palm trees um, lying in the 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 Clyde, the Clyde, um, and it is commutable to Glasgow. But what uh, the the only the only catch is you have to use a ferry. Um, the the SNP aren't doing a terribly good job of maintaining those, <laughs> in it, are they? <laughs> As everyone knows, um, Calmac ferries are, are in a state of, of, of perpetual uh, crisis because they don't have enough ships and the ships keep breaking down. So it is, um, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> good luck with that one. Uh, Josh, what about you? Best place to live well, in the country? You, I, I can tell you where isn't the best place to live in the country, and that's Kilburn High Road, where I am right now, <laughs> which I haven't picked up the rubbish for about four days. So, yeah, thank you, Camden Council. But, that's a bold uh, gamut to take with a man called Patrick Maguire, Josh. That's slander <laughs> on Kilburn. There's, there's only about three Irish people left in Kilburn. But, <laughs> that's true. Um, yeah, I think I'd live probably as Coastal Dorset is my, my favourite spot. Coastal Dorset. Well, try Coastal Merseyside. There's nowhere better, I can tell you that, from many years of experience this is the Redbox politics podcast that was melanie reed and josh glancy on the day's big issues let's now talk about the 1992 election with neil kinnock chris patton and phil webster hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. And now it's time for this. 30 years ago this Saturday, Britain went to the polls for an election that was widely considered to be a bit of a gimme for Neil Kinnock and the Labour Party. 
On we go to this morning's front pages. The Guardian says John Major last night caught the unmistakable whiff of defeat after the publication of the latest opinion polls. The Times, whose poll gives Labour a seven-point lead, says the party appears to have enjoyed a delayed benefit from its concentration on health. I'll tell you what, Mr. Tanger did in the last 12 years. She took a hatchet right the way through that tangle of over-regulation and over-government, and she beat a pathway of choice and opportunity right the way through the middle of that tangle. It's an old cliche that oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. And that's what seems to be happening here. We're all right! We're all right! We're all right! And now, our exit poll, based on talking to lots of people as they came out of the polls today in some of the key marginal constituencies. But here we are, 10 o'clock, and our view is it's going to be a hung parliament. This election is too close to call. Christopher Francis Patton, 21,950. Well, it's written on their faces. In the wake of the election defeat, I'm taking action which, in my judgment as leader, will serve the best interests of the Labour Party. I will not be seeking re-election as the leader of the Labour Party. Ladies and gentlemen, the Prime Minister. Well, even after Brexit and the 2017 general election, 1992 remains one of the greatest shocks in British political history. The polls were wrong, of course, and nearly three decades on, well, exactly three decades on, as of tomorrow, Britain finds itself in a sort of similar place. The Tories have been in power for nearly a decade and a half. They're in the shadow of an unpopular leader who imposed tax rises, and Labour is desperate to reinvent itself. Oh, and of course, there's the small matter of a war abroad. But we know what happened in the end. John Major won the Conservative leadership after Margaret Thatcher resigned in 1990. He was widely expected to lose his first test before the British electorate to Neil Kinnock's Labour, thanks to the legacy of that hugely unpopular poll tax and British involvement in the Gulf. So how did John Major get out of that hole? Well, he appointed Chris Patton, now Lord Patton of Barnes, of course, as Conservative Party chairman, to create a Tory election strategy that would deliver an unlikely victory. I spoke to him earlier this week and I started by asking whether staring down the barrel of an election with an untested leader seeking a nearly unprecedented fourth term in power, part of him thought, God, why me? I did really, but I really liked John Major. He's a friend of mine, has been for years. I thought he should he deserved all the help one could give him because it was a terrible time. We were into a recession. Nothing seemed to be going right on the on the economy. And we had the poll tax to, to get rid of. We were into a war, going into a war in the Gulf. Uh, it wasn't exactly an attractive time for preparing for an election. And we only had a limited time before we had to go to the polls. So it wasn't easy. And I have to say that being party chairman wasn't a sort of natural job for me. But anyway, it went all right. I know you've said before that John Major was your favourite of the many Tory leaders you worked with. And it was a very personal campaign, wasn't it? You know, the soapbox, the very awed return to his childhood home in Brixton. To what extent do you think it was fundamentally a judgment on two personalities and voters found that they liked Honest John more than the Welsh Wimbach? It was very much a triumph for John Major. I don't share the general criticisms of Neil Kinnock. But John Major stood out as somebody that people thought they could trust, thought was competent. And he was what it said on the tin. And however much some people, including me, (laughs) tried to sort of produce the glamour of an election campaign, it was John Major getting 
And it was his own idea onto a soapbox um, with a megaphone in a crowd of, of people, which started to turn things round. Paddling up to the Liberals for support is like leaning on candy floss. <laughs> Not a chance to much support from that particular quarter. He, he was what he seemed to be, decent, honest, and a guy that people could give the benefit of the doubt to, which is the biggest and most important asset in politics. And of course then, as now, tax was a huge issue, both the poll tax but also famously Labour's tax bombshell. And you oversaw the 92 campaign, but also as Environment Secretary you were in charge of the poll tax. Why do you think ultimately it was you know, the threat of a Labour government putting up taxes that move voters to vote in the way they did rather than the memory, the very recent and raw memory of the poll tax? Well, we'd, we'd said, thank God goodness, that we were getting rid of the poll tax, which I'd inherited. It's what they call in rugby a hospital pass. I didn't invent the wretched thing. But there was in our most famous election poster, the double whammy poster, the threats suggested from Labour of both an increase in tax and growing inflation. And I just don't think that Labour was trusted with the economy. And smart Alec, as Peter Manderson might have been at the time, and, and producing a glossy campaign, it just didn't cut the ice with normal voters. I knew, I knew that we'd won the election when somebody came to me and said, look, I've just been out, out canvassing and people keep on saying to me, why aren't you producing lots of slick stuff about about the things that really matter, like taxes going up if, if Labour wins the election? And I thought, well, if that's what people are saying on the doorstep, they've actually got the point without us being slick in the way we present it. The last Labour government put up the basic rate of tax to 35 pence in the pound which today would be the equivalent of an extra £1,000 a year for the average taxpayer. So where would you find an extra £1,000? And obviously, you, as party chairman, all-purpose spokesman for the party, minister for the day programme, you were ubiquitous in the media and presumably spent a lot of time poring over strategy at central office. But it, as you did that, did you sort of, in your gut, in your heart of hearts, think, God, my own seat is on a knife edge here and it might be slipping away from me? Were you aware of that sort of dynamic, that personal dynamic to the election? Yeah, I was aware of um, the, the difference between what was happening to me and my constituency and what was happening nationally. And really, I'd, I'd sort of lost my seat in the previous election because that was the, we went the, the time we saw a huge shift in, in tactical voting by Labour in my constituency. My own vote went down a bit, and that process continued in 1992, exacerbated probably um, by the fact that I was rather unhappily associated with the with the policy I'd had to deliver, which was the the poll tax and, and particularly the business rate, which hit Bath particularly well. But in in the event, when I'd said to John, I think it was the Monday before polling day, when I went to see him with a with a list of the seats that I thought we would win and the ones we would lose. And there were some of those um, I'd included on the list, my own constituency. Well, if he has Hi. lost this seat, Dennis there will Lovelace. be much commiseration for him among Tories who Please know that he had a difficult business fighting their Bath. campaign as well as holding on to this marginal seat in Bath. The first cabinet minister to go tonight, if he's gone, the first since Shirley Williams to be defeated at a general election. was as follows. Michael Ellison Foster... Liberal Democrat. 25,000... <laughs> Chris Patton has lost this seat. And John said, uh, but, but your, your own seat's here. And I said, yeah. And he just, I think, thought it was, a, it was an example of my 
personal, personally pessimistic attitude very often. And for much of the campaign, I thought I was inevitably going to lose my constituency. And my wife um, was doing a great deal of canvassing for me there uh, and had a pretty difficult time on the doorstep from, from rather unpleasant liberal tactics. I mean, people think that the elections are tough with Labour, but the Liberals are, are nice guys. It's completely untrue. Well, I, I, you know, I, I was reading your account of that campaign earlier and I thought this was a memorable line for you. You wrote that a, a number of rather unattractive and mildly snobbish middle-class voters who wanted a Conservative Party strong enough to protect them from Labour taxes but could only imagine voting Conservatives with their noses firmly held were what did for you in Bath. Do you think you look at the electoral map now, seats like Bath, which is obviously held by the Lib Dems, but also in the in the shires, in what they're now calling the yellow halo in the southeast around London, history sort of seems to be repeating itself there, doesn't it? Yeah, it does a bit. I mean, the, the, the Liberals, um, I mean, li- liberalism matters. I'm, I regard myself as a liberal Tory, and I think classical liberalism is hugely important. Checks and balances any system and not thinking that elections are the only thing that matters in a parliamentary democracy. But I don't think that liberal Democrats, the Liberal Party, represents anything except not being anybody else. And the Liberals have done very well uh, in the past, when they've been able to cash in on the unpopularity of Labour and the Conservatives, and when they've got a strong leader um, like Paddy Ashdown, who was a was a, a very very good leader, and also he turned out to be a terrific statesman in in the Balkans. With those circumstances, they can get a lot of votes. Yeah, and that's a very very tricky catch-all proposition to campaign against. I just wanted to ask, looking at the broadly similar circumstances in which the Tory Party finds itself. You know, there's a war, albeit one that Britain's not directly involved in, unpopular tax rises, a leader. Well, there are no comparisons between John Major and Boris Johnson, of course. But if you were to find yourself in CCHQ tomorrow and were charged with thinking of a strategy for the next election, do you think you would have an idea of how to fight this election, given the map has changed so much? Well, there's a very fundamental problem today, which is we don't have a Conservative government or really a Conservative party. And we've got some Conservatives, some some excellent ones. I mean, Jeremy Hunt, obviously. I think Ben Wallace is, is a Conservative, and there are some in the Cabinet. But basically, we've got an English Nationalist Party, which has been taken over by the by the Johnson cult. Um, and I think it's doing huge damage to the country, uh, and will do huge damage to the country. But I think sooner or later, uh, we need to have a proper Conservative government again, moderate and decent internationalist I mean, I think the government have done well during the Ukraine war, but it would have been um, difficult not to take the stand that they have taken against an an evil um, dictatorial regime, which is murdering people in the Ukraine. I mean, you can't um, you can't do anything but oppose that as vigorously as possible. But I don't think we've got a conservative government now. So if if you were conservative party chairman, you'd have a long way to go. And it would be jolly difficult these days, wouldn't it, to fight a campaign on the basis that the Conservative Party stood for lower taxation, because um, I don't think that's obviously the case anymore. One final question. Obviously, that election was the end of your career in um, electoral politics. And given what you said about sort of having made peace with leaving Parliament or at least losing your seat by the end of the campaign, looking back, what are your personal feelings about how the campaign ended for you? It was very painful at the time, but I was incredibly lucky. And I owe a great deal to the people of Bath because I... Um, I had a fantastic job. So um, thank you very much indeed, Bath. Um, I was saved from, according to John Major, he, I was saved from this. He wanted to make me Chancellor of the Exchequer. Now, that would have been 
um, much a lot of fun, wouldn't it? No, certainly more fun than Black Wednesday, the Maastricht Treaty and the Cones Hotline, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. That was Chris Patton, who masterminded John Major's shock win in 1992, but lost his own seat in the process. But what about the man on the other side of the divide? Neil Kinnock, of course, lost that election and brought his time as Labour leader, his nine years as Labour leader. God, that sounds like a long time by the standards of modern politics to an end. I started by asking him whether he expected a win, as anyone who saw that infamous Sheffield rally just before polling day might have assumed. Uh, Well, in that question, you managed to uh, refer to, for instance, the Sheffield rally, which had no significance whatsoever, as all subsequent analysis demonstrated. So that's tosh. But there is a great deal to be said. Um, The basic question is, did I go into the election expecting to win? The answer is no. My highest expectation at any stage, and that was in the first week or 10 days, was for a hung parliament with possibly as as the largest single party. But that was the maximum expectation I had. And as the campaign went on, uh, that faded somewhat uh, so that by the time we actually got the result, I was dismayed, obviously. Uh, that's an understatement. But I wasn't surprise. Uh, In fact, I was devastated because of the effect that I thought it would have on the people of our country. Uh, But other than that, there was no real surprise. You say the rally, the Sheffield rally thing, which is remembered very well now, was tosh. But obviously the way elections are remembered are, you know, always different to how they seem at the time. And audibly it irritates you to hear people say, oh, you know, the story of that election was Labour riding high in the polls up until the point that Neil Kinnock got up on stage in Sheffield and looked uh, complacent or triumphalist. That must that must be irritating. I can, you know, I can tell it annoys you. Well, yes, it, it isn't so much annoying as just fiction, uh, because, uh, first of all, the rally, for good or ill, uh, barely registered in the public consciousness, uh, partly because due to the song and dance beforehand, which was contrary to my very explicit instructions, the rally started too late to properly catch the news bulletins. Secondly, it wasn't until about a week later that parts of the press and some uh, self-professed political analysts started to uh, give attention to that rally as being significant in terms of public response. And the mythology really built up from there. And it, it was mythology. I mean, the other about much of the reporting, which to their credit, has been corrected in some sources, is that I didn't say we're all right. It was a completely inane rock and roll concert cry of, well, all right. We're all right! We're all right! We're all right! And in the tumult, I was trying to get some silence so that I could get on with the speech because I was very conscious of the time. And for some reason or another, God knows why, the phrase, term, ball, cry, slogan, nonsense came into my head. Well, all right. Well, all right. And that's what I actually said. Not that it makes a damn bit of difference. And yet, and yet, you know, journalists like me keep asking you about it. But anyway, um, if we move on to, you know, more substantive issues, you know, superficially, at least the parallels between that election and the election we might get in 2023, 2024 are quite compelling, aren't they? Tory party in power for nearly 15 years, 
and they've moved on to John Major. Was he a more formidable opponent than you expected, you know, when he got onto his soapbox? Mr Major's soapbox was produced, but not everyone was happy to see him. I'll tell you what Mrs Thatcher did in the last 12 years. She took a hatchet right the way through that tangle of over-regulation and over-government, and she beat a pathway of choice and opportunity right the way through the middle of that tangle. Were you surprised at the gambit he took in that election? Uh, no more surprised than he was, because as John Major will probably tell you himself, he took to the soapbox and the loud hailer uh, as something of an act of desperation. He was uh, worried about the way in which their campaign was going. In my view, then and now, unnecessarily. But he grabbed an orange box, I think it was actually, from the boot of the bus and got his loud hailer and with that act demonstrated physically more dramatically and categorically than just about anything else that he was definitely not Margaret Thatcher and of course uh, Chris Patton had very wisely uh, decided that the election should be fought on the normality the approachfulness uh, of John Major uh, and also on our so-called tax and spend policies um, the double whammy and the other big story of that election, or at least the adverts that everybody remembers, were about Labour's tax policy or how the Tories chose to spin Labour's yes. economic policy. Labour is so keen to get into power that they've been making lots of promises. Adding up the cost of all the promises Labour have made to date, it comes to an astonishing £35 billion extra a year. Where would they get this money? Um, Labour is always going to be an invidious position when it makes an economic offer to the public because of um, you know that perception about the relative merits of each party's handling of the economy. Do you think you could ever have won that argument? I mean, John Smith, uh, as your shadow chancellor, put in a lot of the groundwork before trying to rehabilitate Labour's image in that respect, did he? But do you think you're always fighting a losing battle in the public imagination on that front? Not necessarily. If I take you back to October, November of 1991, uh, when the Tories first tried out their Labour tax bombshell campaign, uh, I argued, as uh, colleagues in the Shadow Cabinet uh, who were still alive would testify, I argued that we should uh, produce our menu of uh, taxation and expenditure policies then and give ourselves months in which to rebut uh, and, I thought, hopefully destroy the Tory claims because they had very little else to say. John, unfortunately, didn't agree with that. Uh, he said a lot, lot of store by producing what he called his shadow budget when the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Norman Lamont, produced his budget. And because, of course, we couldn't afford any kind of public bus step or division, um, John had his way. Rebutting that kind of claim in a period of weeks outside an election is an easy task by comparison with trying to overturn it and to push back against it and rebut it in the crushed days and weeks of a general election. We're in a different situation now since you raised the present conditions because the mess that has been made over a period of 12 years, not just in recent months, of the way in which the economy directly affects people of just about every class, from the relatively well-off 
to the desperately poor, and we've got more of those, that's of a different order from anything that was being experienced, even with the recession in 1991 into 92. So uh, I think that uh, if there are conservatives who are thinking they can take the playbook down off the shelf now, uh, they are likely to be sadly disappointed by a different kind of public response, especially since Labour now is building its reputation for being highly responsible and indeed cautious in its economic policy. It's interesting, but speaking to Chris Patton actually earlier, he spoke about how the result was ultimately an endorsement of the John Major they chose to present to the public. You know, honest John, decent, down-to-earth, humble. Is it difficult for you, you know, as somebody who led the Labour Party for nine years, came closer than most people ever do to becoming Prime Minister, to think that it was, I hope you don't think this is an impertinent question, but that it was to some extent a personal judgment on who voters liked more. Obviously, you have a rhino hide in politics, but is that difficult to process now looking back? No, 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 no. Partly, of course, because John Major is fundamentally a decent fellow. He's a good bloke. And they did the right thing. Chris did the right thing instinctively in insisting on that projection. If John Major had been a bounder, if he'd been a lying narcissist like the current Prime Minister, then probably it wouldn't have been possible to project him as successfully uh, as a decent fella that you could live next door to uh, who would look after your cat when you went away on holiday or prune your roses. By comparison, uh, I'd been in the job nine years. I'd fought a lot of battles and showed some of the scars. And uh, nine years of pretty constant negative drip, 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 uh, misrepresentation, even on occasion, actionable libel, um, does have a cumulative effect. So there you have the two lead characters, as it were, uh, one with a faithful and supportive representation, largely to his credit, and the other one with a less than endearing (laughs) presentation. Uh, And I take my share of the blame for that. That was the former Labour leader, Neil Kinnock, who, of course, lost in 1992. Really interesting, I thought, hearing how much the Sheffield rally and that memory still smarts. Genuinely quite difficult, to my inexpert ear at least, to hear whether it was well all right or we're all right. I'm pretty sure um, there might have been an R in there, having listened to it several times over the past few days. should say, of course, there were another party. There was another party in play, the Liberal Democrats, just like in 2015. Talk of a hung parliament dominated. Indeed, that's what the exit poll said on uh, on election night. The perception that Labour would be a Trojan horse for those smaller parties, did harm Neil Kinnock. That's what historians say. But ultimately, Lib Dems underperformed. Times Walker's, uh, sorry, Times Radio's Carol Walker has been in touch with her memories of the campaign, one of the first she covered as a journalist. She was on the Lib Dem battle bus when the late Paddy Ashdown was revealed to have had an affair. The Paddy pants down revelations, as she memorably puts it. I think that one uh, speaks for itself. Phil Webster, former political editor of the Times, indeed former editor of the Times Redbox morning email, which I now write. Morning, Phil. Hi there. Hi. Um, let's rewind back to 1992. What do you remember going into that election? Um, was the narrative that Labour were bound to win, that it was Kinnock's to lose? Yes, it certainly was. I spent the, the early part of the election with... Uh, with John Major, and uh, I, I was there when the soapbox was produced at the first uh, the first time. And uh, I think Neil Kinnock was right in that interview in, in saying that there was an element of desperation 
in his tactic at that time. He had to get out of the, the voters' minds that uh, he was not a continuation of Margaret Thatcher, and that was the reason he did that. And uh, yes, it was very much, it seemed at the start, uh, Neil Kinnock's to lose. Um, uh, you'll ask me about Sheffield. Certainly, um, we did not know at the time that Sheffield had had a big impact. The next morning, we were still writing that Labour were in the lead. And in fact, the polls were saying that right until the end. Um, but I can see now why Neil Kinnock feels that he's been uh, unfairly treated over the Sheffield rally. But as somebody who was there, I think it must have had an impact on voters. But that impact was only revealed much later. To what extent do you think, because the campaign John Major for, ended up being so so deeply personal, given that voters had tired of Thatcher by that point, but not necessarily of Thatcherism. You know, he made it a very personal campaign. To what extent do you think ultimately it came down to a personal judgment? I mean, Neil Kinnock, um, when I spoke to him, said, look, he'd been in office for nine years at that point. Perhaps the Welsh windbag thing had started to um, started to uh, make him a little bit, little bit tedious in the minds of voters. And John Major, while untested, was sort of fresher, humble, decent, honest John. Do you think ultimately it came down to a very personal judgment between the two of them? I think it was that was quite a that was quite a big factor in the campaign. But I, from my point of view, the biggest factor was that Labour made the mistake uh, when its own polls started to narrow. It started talking about electoral reform, mm. and it started talking about doing deals with the Lib Dems. Now, at that time, there were a lot of Conservative voters who'd been absolutely fed up with Thatcherism. And they were the people who still felt, was this Thatcherism carrying on? And uh, they were ready to cast a protest vote with the Lib Dems. Now, when the Labour Party started talking about electoral pacts and electoral reform, those Tories started thinking, oh, wow, we vote for the Lib Dems, we're going to get Labour. And that is where, when you look back on it, that is where the Sheffield rally may have had its impact. That that may have made some of those potential Lib Dem voters think, if I go Lib Dem, I'm going to get Neil Kinnock. And that may have had an effect there. And that, that, that's, I think, what the historians will say about the, uh, the election. Sheffield must have had an impact, but it wasn't the biggest impact. Labour's biggest mistake was to stop talking as if they were going to win and to start talking about electoral pacts. And that's always a danger for Labour, isn't it? We saw it in 2015 with the SNP. We might well see it um, at the next election, given, um, you know, talk of a tacit electoral deal between Keir Starmer and Ed Davey, or at least standing aside or standing, uh, you know, running a sort of slightly less energetic campaign in, in their target seats. Just briefly, Phil, in a sentence, what if you were advising Keir Starmer who just lives around the corner from Neil Kinnock in, uh, in North London, actually. Um, what lessons do you think he can draw from uh, you know, his predecessor's loss here? I think he, he would be certainly wrong to talk about electoral pacts in advance, but he needs to be re- absolutely ready when the time comes because it, it'll take, uh, even with a, a very unpopular Tory party at the moment, it will still take mm. a massive switch of fortunes. Uh, for Labour to win on its own, so he needs to keep talking. <laughs> he needs to keep his um, uh, contacts open 
with other parties, but yeah. he certainly doesn't need to talk about electoral packs in advance because that would be equally disastrous. Food for thought for Keir Starmer there from a man who's seen it all. Phil Webster, former political editor at The Times. Before that, we heard from Neil Kinnock and Chris Patton. 